With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is a bonus episode of Money for the Rest of Us. I wanted to share an interview that I did with, or a discussion really, with Bill Yount and Becky Heptig. They are the co-host of the podcast and website Catching Up to Fi. It's financial independence for late starters. I was on their show a couple months ago, and later I was listening to the interview. It's about an hour long, a little over an hour. In answering their questions, which were based on my book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, but I I definitely expounded on them because it's been three or four years since that book came out. I have additional thoughts on those topics, and and I realized this hour discussion really encapsulates my investment philosophy, my approach to investing today. And I thought, well, so often with with the podcast, we're covering specific topics and we don't ever sort of zoom out and get a larger picture of my approach to investing. Now, we recently upgraded our email series for those that join the Insider's Guide email list that that captures many of, of those aspects of my approach to investing. But This is a podcast, and I wanted to share it with you. I appreciate Becky and Bill having me on their show. I think you'll enjoy this discussion as we look at a systematic approach to investing, both to save for retirement and during retirement. Hello, and welcome back to Catching Up to Fi. I'm Bill Young with my co-host, Becky Heptig. And today we have an exciting guest for you, David Stein, who helps individuals become better and more confident investors through his writing, audio, and video. David hosts the personal finance podcast, Money for the Rest of Us. The show has over 20 million downloads and reaches more than 40,000 listeners per episode. Prior to launching his podcast over eight years, David advised and managed access for institutions and financial planners. He was chief investment strategist and chief portfolio strategist for Fund Evaluation Group, LLC. David perfected his teaching style as an investment consultant to numerous not-for-profit institutions. His book, Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, is different from many of the investing books our audience may have read. It is pivotal in helping, quote, the rest of us, end quote, make less emotional and risk-conscious decisions when making any investment. I've interacted with David virtually for a few years now, starting shortly after I stumbled across his podcast while I was lost on a wooded hike not too far from my home one day. His wisdom has helped me make better and more knowledgeable decisions with my investing. It is with great pleasure that we welcome David to Catch Up to Fi. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here with us. Let's jump right in. So who is the rest of us, David? The rest of us... Well, first off, the name Money for the Rest of Us came from a marketing friend of mine, Bernadette Jiwa. 
And she says, I have a book title for you, Money for the Rest of Us. And she didn't define who rest of us is. So it's sort of, in my mind over the years, it's those of us individual investors, first off, that aren't working on Wall Street are just trying to save and invest for, for retirement or in retirement. And so we're not investing experts. So how do we navigate an increasingly complex world of finance and investing when we're not experts? And so the the goal of Money for the Rest of Us, the book, the podcast, the membership community is to really be a guide to help individuals sort of manage this very, very complex domain of investing and finance. In your book, you quote Ned Davis, who is a renowned investor and market technician, saying, we're in the business of making mistakes. The only difference between the winners and the losers is that the winners make small mistakes and the losers make big mistakes. Now, you also quote a great person called Annie Duke, professional poker player and the author of Thinking in Bets, making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. And she states, what makes a great decision is not that it has a great outcome. A great decision is the result of a good process. Decisions are bets on the future. They aren't right or wrong based on whether they turn out well on a particular iteration. An unwanted result doesn't make our decision wrong if we thought about the alternatives and probabilities in advance and allocated our resources accordingly. Your book is like a quality control checklist, is it not? It really is. And with the idea of keeping our mistakes small, because we all make mistakes, we are all investing, not knowing what the future will be. And and the whole idea is how and I spent a couple of decades as a, a professional investor managing assets, mostly for institutional clients. And when I quit in, in my mid-40s, I spent about 10 days in Mexico just writing and thinking about investing and in the theme was like how do we invest in a world where nobody can predict the future and accurately know what's going to happen yet many investors think they can and, and the entire premise of investing is we think this is going to happen we believe this is going to happen and then we make a choice when in reality we have no idea what's going to happen and which makes, a, to me, an incredibly intriguing problem because we have a lot of financial stake. But so how? Do, what's this process? What's this checklist for investing when you don't know what's going to happen? And, and that was sort of the theme of the book and, and the podcast and, and what we've been teaching for just about a decade now at Money for the Rest of Us. David, I I was thinking about this and the fact that this book is like a checklist. My oldest son is a pilot for the Air Force and for United Airlines. And he has a checklist he goes through every single time before he takes off in that airplane. And I talked to him yesterday about this, and he said, well, my checklist is a procedural checklist to try to eliminate errors and omissions. But he said, this is more because money is emotional and a behavioral issue. So your book is a way for us to eliminate behavioral bias. And I think that's what you were just talking about. Is our we're, we're trying to rein in our behaviors? Well, exactly. And as Bill said, a, a quality control check. So it's mm-hmm. investing can feel it's sort of the, the shiny toy syndrome. Something comes along, everybody's talking about it, be it cryptocurrency or treasury inflation protection securities or, or anything, and we get all excited. 
And so much of personal finance hype newsletters is that like, I'm going to teach you to make millions and an individual, I mean, your podcast is catching up to five people that feel like they're behind are especially vulnerable to being taken in by over promises. And mm -hmm. I believe I talk about it in the book where one of our sponsors to a podcast for a while was Sleep Number Bed. And so we, we I got tired of talking about the Sleep Number Pillow. I was like, oh, we're going to just go buy the bed. So I bought the bed and, and the salesman was so excited about investing and trading that he barely tried to even sell us a bed. But he had spent $25,000 to learn how to trade individual okay. securities, options, foreign currency, and because he was behind and he admitted he was behind. So he took his inheritance or much of his inheritance to learn how to trade. And I, and this was a guy that way out of his element. And so I said, well, who, where's this trading academy? This was in Phoenix. So I went to the academy for two to three hours for their pitch. And it was basically people you know, my age that were feeling like they were behind. And that was the thing. You're behind. The only way you're going to catch up is to learn how to trade options and foreign currencies, which is crazy because that's a loser's game. For every winner in foreign currency, somebody has to lose. And, and invariably, that's the individual investor. In fact, their entire patented process that they had, and I found the patent, it says, Basically, we teach investors how to take advantage of other more naive investors. And, and that's the market. And that's what people are supposedly. And so the, the point is having a process, having a checklist, in some ways, it's a guide, but it helps us eliminate a dumb things because of the emotion, because we feel like we're behind. So we, we're going to have to make 15, 20% annualized returns or more, which isn't possible in today's world. Yeah, I, I learned about a checklist when I was in med school and the surgeons use one. They don't want to cut off the wrong leg. So when they're in the operating room, they run through a checklist. They mark the leg and they make sure that they don't make those big mistakes. You actually learned about the value of a checklist when you were a youth packing boxes, did you not? Bill, yeah, when I was in college, I worked at an office products warehouse. And, and so we would push around these carts and it would be a list that you would go through and and you would put, see this, they want so many pens or so many staples or things like that. And we'd put them in the cart and we'd put them in the box and then they'd ship the box out. And I thought it was good. I was in college. I, I, I was pretty easy. You could listen to some music or the radio was playing and you'd go around. And then they decided that if you made an error, they would put a yellow marker on it and then they would hammer the, or they put the, the missed order on a nail. And I thought, all right, we're going to keep score. That's exciting. And I remember after the first three days, I had this, this thing of paper of missed orders and I, and I couldn't believe it. Cause when you're in the, in the process, you feel like, well, I got it. And, and so I had to change my process to basically check the order, you know, twice. Like I, I would look at it, I would get it, I would put the pens in the box, and then I would double check to make sure I'd got the right thing. And that, and that just that simple additional step, it, it sort of measured twice, saw once type thing, I was able to reduce the errors in, in that particular situation. And so checklists are important, both to control our emotions, but help to guide us and to eliminate needless mistakes. 
Mm-hmm. Now you compare the 10 questions to a clawed mirror. I found this fascinating. You were on a trip to the Grand Canyon, and I've been to this stone house or whatever, and you turn around backwards and you look at the Grand Canyon through this clawed mirror. Can you describe what that is and how it helps you frame the 10 questions? Well, sure. So basically, you got this giant vista of the Grand Canyon, and yet this mirror that's, I think it's on the, it would be on the south side of the canyon at one of the old sort of cabin things that you have. But basically, it reduces the vision. So it it just frames it, and it, it puts a box around sort of the vision of the Grand Canyon, and it helps you to focus on that particular element of the Grand Canyon. And the, a, a checklist or like the 10 questions that we use at Money for the Rest of Us, that helps frame this very, very complex financial and investment sy- system in, into the things that are that just basically help us to focus so that it's not as overwhelming at, because investing can feel overwhelming. And the whole idea is let's narrow our focus to the principles that drive returns, that help us to make good decisions. Decisions where we recognize we don't know what's going to happen, so we do the best with what we have, what we do know, and invest that way. Mm -hmm. So let's jump into those 10 questions. And question number one is, what is it? Which sounds very basic, but I think a lot of people probably don't even think about this step and just skip right over it. So talk to us about defining what is an investment well yeah this is this is very very important and i and i learned this from one of my institutional clients so it's a university endowment and the investment committee chair told me that as committee chair he won't approve anything or recommend anything that he any type of investment that he couldn't explain to the overall board of the university who weren't at the meetings and you realize that that's a good rule. If we're going to enter a new investment, we or any new endeavor, we should be able to explain it to a friend or a family member because the act of trying to explain something actually humbles us. And we realize, well, there's things that maybe I don't know it as well. Not that we have to be an expert on it, but we ought to like take this this mattress or this bed salesperson. He couldn't really explain how this trading process worked. And, And to his credit, he wasn't actually playing with real money yet. He was practicing, but we need to be able to define what the investment is. And sort of the other nine questions in the book are really are things that we should be able to to tell somebody, which is question number two is what's the difference between investing, speculating, and gambling? Well, an, an investment is something with a positive expected return. So it could be a piece of real estate where you're receiving rent. It could be an index mutual fund or ETF, where there's a percentage of the profits from the public traded stocks comes to you in the form of dividends. So it's something where there, there is an element to it where we can, not knowing the future, but have a very good base case that we're going to make money because we're receiving the dividends, we're receiving the interest, we're receiving the rents. That's very different from a gamble. A gamble is something where you go to Vegas and the odds are stacked against you. The the Las Vegas exists because the house always wins over multiple iterations. And so it has a negative expected return. The, the only reason one gambles is for fun. 
you don't gamble to make money because you won't over the long term or the vast majority of people won't. In fact, the, the, the gamblers that consistently make money get kicked out of the casinos because that's not the business model. <laughs> and then the diff, then in between is the speculation. So a speculation is, is like foreign currency trading. It's investing in gold or Bitcoin where there's some disagreement on what the price should be, what the prospects could be, because there isn't any cash flow to value it to figure out, well, this is what it's worth. If you buy a house in your neighborhood, you can compare it to other houses. You can see what houses are renting for, and you can get a fairly good idea of like, here's what this house is relative to rents, relative to other houses. But when you invest in gold, there isn't any rents with gold. It's just worth whatever people think it's going to be worth. In fact, with gold, there isn't really any other other underlying use except for jewelry. It's not even used in very, very limited use in industrial things. And so that's a frame in and of itself, that question. Here's a new opportunity. Is this an investment? Positive expected return, hopefully with cash flow. Is it a, a gamble where I don't know? I don't know. I know so little about this that my returns potentially are negative. Or is it somewhere in between a speculation where there, there's some disagreement? And not that we don't have the speculations in our portfolio, I, upwards of 10% or more of my portfolio are speculations, but they're not the workhorse of my portfolio. It's, it's cash flow generating compounding assets. Like I think you interviewed Rob Berger a few weeks ago and he talked about compounding. I mean, that's why you want cash flow because it compounds over time and that that's what grows wealth. There are a couple of terms and circling back that I really like in your investment philosophy or thesis. You talk about what does it mean to invest on the leading edge of the present as opposed to using windows of historical returns? Can you explain that to us? Yeah, this gets back to really to question three is what is the upside? It, it's sort of having a base case of understanding what is a reasonable return, let's say for stocks. And stocks Returns are generated by, as I mentioned, the dividends, so that portion of profits paid out to investors. And if you're in a stock index mutual fund, right now that dividend yields around two and a half to three percent. And then those companies, there's thousands of companies, their earnings grow over time, so that dividend increases. And that's those two elements is what drives most of stock returns. What's the dividends? How are the earnings and dividends growing over time? And right now, a reasonable expectation for stocks is, is around 7 to 8%. So you have dividend yield at 3%, earnings grow at 5%, that's an 8% return. But then there's this third element, which is the emotion. Those first two were really the math of investing. The, sec the third one is emotion. What are investors paying for those cash flows? If they're super exuberant, they might be paying a lot for those cash flows. And that pushes down the dividend yield and it increases what's known as, in the case of stocks, the price to earnings ratio. What are investors paying for that dollar worth of earnings? And so the idea is we need to know what the market's temperature is. Because when stocks are super expensive, that lowers our expected return. And so when I talk about investing on the leading edge of the present, we're just Figuring out where are we today? Where is the market temperature today? Is it is it super expensive? And it could be stocks. It could be real estate. If real estate's in a bubble, it's not necessarily a great time to, to purchase real estate. And so just being aware of where we are today, the present, 
what I call the leading edge of the present, helps us make better, more grounded decisions rather than just guessing it or having no idea. And so I think there is a, a certain level of education we need as investors, not to be experts, but we can't totally or divorce ourselves from, from investing or knowing where things are because that can lead to a big mistake. And, and we see this often. Is somebody gets super excited about a particular real estate opportunity. And for, so, for example, uh, the in the U.S., they changed the rules in 2013. So it was easier for real estate partnerships to raise money from individual investors, uh, particularly individuals that you know, may not be wealthy. And there were a lot of, I would say, less than scrupulous or maybe naive real estate partnerships that, that attracted people. Like, I'm going to, we're going to give you 10, 15, 20% annualized returns on these real estates. Well, the problem was a lot of these partnerships were during a time where real estate had gotten pretty pricey, especially apartments. And there was a lot of overbuilding of apartments. And then they were vulnerable to interest rates rising. And as interest rates have rose, it was very difficult for these highly leveraged and debted partnerships to, to, to be positive. And so investors lost all their investment in many cases. But who didn't lose investments in that, right? If you look at the big institutional real estate players, they also had some apartments or maybe some hotels that, or malls that didn't work out or commercial office buildings. What did they do? They walked away and handed over the keys to the, the bank. But it was such a small percentage of their portfolio that it doesn't make a difference. And so as, that's just a simple example of, of diversification, but also recognizing kind of where we're at, which is sort of question four. What's the downside? What's the worst thing that could happen to the investment? If someone's putting that much money in a particular real estate deal because they, they trust the person, there's downside to real estate. And, and the biggest downside is interest rates go up and the value of that real estate could fall and it becomes more difficult to meet the debt servicing cost, depending on how it's set up. And so that's that's really important in any type of investing. Understand the upside. What are the principles that drive the expected returns? And then what's the downside? What's the, what's the worst case scenario? How could we potentially be ruined by this investment? Let's circle back to question three, which is what up, what is the upside again? How do we apply these rules to stocks and bonds? For example, how do we compare bond opportunities? So, so bonds are pretty straightforward. If it's a bond mutual fund, let's say a BND, the Vanguard Total Bond Market ETF, the the fund Vanguard, you go on the website, they'll post what's called the yield to maturity, which is right now it's probably around four and a half to five percent. And without getting in the complexity of, of bonds, that starting yield is actually a really good estimate for what bonds returns for a long-term investor. So somebody's holding that seven to 10 years. And so that's it's just simple. The upside of bonds is it's an income generating asset. So you know, as interest rates go up and down, the bond fund or ETF can fluctuate. But over, let's say, a seven-year period, even if interest rates go up, the value of the fund might go down. It's reinvesting that interest at higher, higher, at higher interest rates. And so that's just a simple, so it's sort of a rule of thumb. If I'm investing in bonds, what's a reasonable expected return? And that's sort of the starting yield, the yield to maturity. With stocks, it's it's that process I talked about, the 
an expectation for stocks would be what's the current dividend yield plus the earnings growth. And, and combined, that's going to be the bulk of the return, at, assuming that we purchase it at a at a more reasonable valuation. And so just kind of knowing where we are, and, and, and granted, that can feel overwhelming. And that's why for some people, maybe if you're saving for retirement, a, a target date index, a target date mutual funds fine. Let Vanguard worry about the allocations over time. And we can focus on on the saving component. But once we sort of want to start doing more than investing on our own, then we should at least have an understanding of what's what's a reasonable return. For just say the simple calculation, if you work with a retirement calculator, trying to figure out when can I retire? Well, what return do you use? Do you use backward-looking returns or do you use returns based on the present, the leading edge of the present? Well, we don't want to use backwards return and assume stocks are going to return 12% annualized like they have for some periods because a portion of that 12% return was because stocks got more expensive over time, which may not be the case going forward. We don't want to, we don't buy a house, sometimes we buy a house thinking the price will always go up, but not dramatically up in terms of, of stocks because that way that means the the price to earnings ratio keeps going higher and higher and higher and higher. And there, there is no justification for that. And so just grounding ourselves in some basic understanding of what drives stock returns is incredibly important, which is why we, we this uh, month or so ago, we launched uh, something called Asset Camp at assetcamp.com. And it basically takes the entire global stock market. There are uh, over uh, 47 different indices and it allows you to compare. How did U.S. stocks do over the past decade? What drove the returns? How much was the dividend? How much was the earnings? How much was because stocks got more expensive? And this becomes particularly important if we're just comparing U.S. versus non-U.S. A lot of people say, I don't want to invest outside the U.S. because the U.S. always does better. Well, no, it doesn't because it depends on the drivers. What was the dividend yield? Well, the dividend yield on U.S. stocks is one and a half percent. You can get twice as much non-U.S. stocks. Maybe the earnings growth will be faster, but these are key elements, basic rules of thumb to understand investing. Hmm. So, David, on the downside, you have a quote in your book, the downside of an investment is a function of its potential loss and the personal harm caused by the loss. So what do you mean by that? And specifically, what do you mean by personal harm? Well, running out of money in retirement. Or not losing your retirement. The example of these investors that put the bulk of their retirement in one real estate partnership. In this case, I'm thinking one down, I think it was in Houston. And the partnership went bankrupt and they lost all their money. What do you do if you're trying to save for retirement and you just lost 80 to 90% of your retirement? Or the people that over-trusted an advisor that was promising 15% returns and it turned out to be a Ponzi scheme. And so the downside is things that we can't recover from. If we have 3% of our investments in a particular real estate deal and it goes bad, we can recover from that. Maybe we lost 3% or it was in a cryptocurrency and it plummeted. It's, it's just overreaching without understanding the fundamentals. Whether it's is it's a speculation, and what's what's the downside? What's the worst thing that 
that we will personally be harmed because for, for individual investors, risk is not volatility. Stock market goes up and down. Risk is, will we be ruined if stocks lose 60%, which they can and have done historically? And we're a year from retirement and we're 90% in stocks, we're ready to retire and and the stock market falls 60% and it, it throws off our math. And so that's what the downside is. Would you explain to us the the terms that you just use, volatility and risk? What's the difference? So risk is a basically bad things. So what are bad things that could happen if I think of risk? Uh, volatility is just me- one measure of risk. Volatility is is let's say for a stock market or housing market, it goes up, but it goes down. And and volatility is in academic finance is the traditional way that they measure risk. And the idea is that if something's more volatile, it has more swings up and down, then it's we should get paid more for holding that. Our approach to investing is like we don't, the entire finance or, or the math of finance is sort of based on that. It's called modern uh, portfolio theory or MPT. We don't spend time on that because our definition of risk for investing is what I call the maximum drawdown. How much could we lose? What's the worst case for losing? And how long does it typically take to recover? So I mentioned stocks. A worst case scenario for stocks is a 60% loss. And it can take five years or more to recoup those losses. And so that's really risk is bad things. Volatility is one measure. We can also measure the maximum drawdown. And and that's we're trying to avoid bad things that ruin our lives, basically. Could be same with health. Smoking is risky. Why? Because it can kill us. <laughs> with yeah. with repeated exposure. Not one cigarette, <laughs> right? Which is another definition. I was on our member forum at our on our community and we were we were talking about this. That and, and the gentleman gave the example. Well, if there was a 20% chance of dying in an airplane, nobody would fly. But if there was a 1%, oh, that seems less risky, but no, a 1% exposure of dying in an airplane, nobody would do that either. It's got to be so, so small because if something, if you have a half a percent chance of ruining your retirement or dying, but you keep taking that same bet over and over again, like you're smoking, one cigarette's not going to kill you, but repeated exposure to a risk can destroy us eventually. And that's why, Becky, you mentioned your son in, in the checklist for airplanes. I mean, there are so many redundancies built into flying that the idea is to reduce risk. Although I, I did see an article the other day that apparently there's been a lot of near misses on the tarmac and in flight because there's not enough air traffic controllers. So there's a risk a threat that now needs to be managed and adjusted to. And we see the same thing all the time. Different threats come up. We have to adapt and understand where we are. Yeah, the smoking analogy is interesting because Jonathan Clements, who we recently had on the show, said, why do people max out their 401k when they smoke? (laughs) Because they're reducing their human capital and their lifetime capital. And so live for the present because... Max Ant, your 401k doesn't make sense with smoking. <laughs> All right. Exactly. <laughs> All right. So question number five, who is on the other side of the trade? 
So why do we need to determine who's on the other side of the trade? Because if, so let's say some people like to purchase individual stocks, like typically maybe the FAI community doesn't, but they want to, well, right now, artificial intelligence is is super exciting. So people are wanting to go out and buy, I want to go buy NVIDIA or, or I want to buy whatever exciting thing is happening and it's a good company and they think they're going to make money. But uh, when you buy a stock, it's an auction market. When we buy something, there's somebody selling it to us. When we buy a car, we know this. We're, we're more aware when we're buying a car. We're much more skeptical. If we're buying a car, we want to know what's wrong, if, wrong with it. Why are they selling it? What do they know that we don't know? And so in, in a car purchase or a house purchase, we're very aware of who's selling it. Why are they selling it? What do they know that they're not disclosing? That's why we have all these, these disclosure forms when we buy real estate. But if we go out and buy a stock, somebody is selling it to us. And with stocks, most of the trading are they're on the other side. They're institutional investors. So they're super, super educated individuals. It may be computer algorithms, but they know something that we don't. And they probably know more about this stock than we do. Or I give the example of foreign currency. Like that's, there's somebody taking the opposite side of the trade. And so it's important with investing to, to, to put the odds on our side. That's why we focus on cash flow. And that's why we focus on diversifying into index mutual funds or ETFs. Because with a stock, you buy an individual stock. The only reason to buy it is because you think it's going to do better than everybody expects. Because you have sort of this consensus of buyers and sellers. There's the going price. The only way that stock is going to do better and outperform the rest of the market is it surprises to the upside. It, like the NVIDIA sells way more chips than anybody conceived. Because if everybody, it's already baked in what's going to happen and that doesn't happen, then the stock's going to fall. And so why we buy index mutual funds or ETFs is they have thousands of companies and some surprise to the upside and do better than expected. Some do worse than expected and their, their prices fall. But those positive surprises and negative surprises, they cancel each other out. So what drives an index fund over time? It's the dividends. It's the cash flow. It's the earnings growth, which is a factor of is the economy growing over time. So those drivers and that we can control more of that because we can see it. We're buying an individual stock and don't or uh, uh, some other type of thing and don't really understand who's selling it to us and knowing that they're smarter than us, then we're likely to be disappointed. One of the other things you talk about in this chapter is active manager underperformance. Can you tell us what you mean by that and why that's important to us? Sure. So back in the day, most, it, if you were saving for retirement, you had your 401k, it had mutual funds in it. And there, the, a mutual fund is an investment vehicle. So you have a professional manager and they're picking, let's say stocks, and they're trying to figure out which of all the stocks, to put, maybe you had 50 stocks in the portfolio. And they're going through that process of figuring out which of those stocks is going to do better than everybody expects. And so that process of building a more concentrated portfolio, as opposed to an index mutual fund that owns the entire market or owns thousands of securities, that process is known as active management. 
And if we look at the studies, it, generally 60 to 90% of active managers underperform index mutual funds or ETFs. So that's something we can control as an investor. We can invest most of our assets in a passive index mutual fund or an exchange traded fund that's just tracking some aspect of the market. So an example is VT is a DTF. It's the Vanguard Total World Stock Market ETF. It has, I think, eight, 9,000 securities. It owns, uh, it has US, it has non-US, and it's incredibly diversified. So that's an example of a passive index fund. But another example of active is some investors say, I'm going to own VTI. So just the US index fund by Vanguard. Well, that's an active bet because you're saying, or we're saying the US stock market is going to do better than the rest of the world. But the global stock market currently is only 60% US stocks. So we're, we're ignoring 40% of the world and saying the, the other 60 is going to continue to do better. Well, that's an active bet. A pass, a purely passive bet would be to own the global stock market, which is only 60% stock, US stocks and the other 40% non-US. And so that, that's what we mean by active management. It's, it's bets, positioning that says, I'm right, the rest of the world is wrong. And I'm going to make more than the rest of the world because of my active decisions. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. When you're hiring for your small business, you want to find quality professionals that are right for the role. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn Jobs has the tools to help find the right professionals for your team faster and for free. I know in our business, having the right candidates for the job is critical to keep our business running smoothly. Now, LinkedIn isn't just another job board. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. It gives you access to professionals you can't find anywhere else. LinkedIn does all that while making the process easy and intuitive. Hiring is easy when you have that many quality candidates. So easy, in fact, that 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. LinkedIn is constantly finding ways to make the process easier. They even just launched a feature that helps you write job descriptions, making the process even easier and quicker. So post your job for free at linkedin.com slash David. That's linkedin.com slash David to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Your business was humming, but now you're falling behind. Teams buried in manual work, taking forever to close the books. If this is you, you should know these three numbers, 37,025, 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, streamlining accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down cost. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you can get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow all in one place. I know in our business, we've seen having the key information is critical to making better decisions. And NetSuite can help make that possible for you. 
Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash David. That's netsuite.com slash David to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash David. Another thing you talk about in this chapter, which I think we need to define as efficient markets. And are the markets really efficient? Are Samuelson and Fama really right? When we talk about what an efficient market is, that's, that's the idea with, a let's say, a given stock, that that price reflects all the available information, the consensus of investors, That which if you're an active investor, like we've talked about, we're saying, no, that stock doesn't include all the information, that stock prices can be wrong. And so I think I know something everyone else does, and I will make more money because of that. I'd, I'd say, generally speaking, when it comes to individual stocks, it's incredibly difficult to outsmart everyone else. And it shows up. We already said, we showed that 60 to 90% of these active mutual funds trail, they lag, they underperform because they're not smarter than everyone else. Where we can see some less efficiencies is when it comes to the asset class level. So baskets of securities. So the housing market, for example, if we think about buying a house in 2005, 2006, the price got incredibly high. There was a lot of exuberance. There was a lot of fraud. It was very easy to take out a loan, two loans, three loans without any type of income verification. So you had individuals buying lots and houses, never even seeing seeing them, two or three. And so the price of houses kept going higher and higher and higher. That's an inefficiency. They weren't priced really reflecting the fundamentals, the actual income of people, the rents. And so we can get assets that get too expensive. It's rare though. Most of the time, things are sort of in the middle. They're not too expensive. They're not too cheap. And so I've always invested, even professionally, I focus on asset classes. I don't care about NVIDIA. I mean, I like AI, but I don't want to invest in a way where I have to outsmart everyone else. I want my investments to be driven by the cash flow and the compounding over time without having to be smarter than everyone else. So, David, what is meant by adaptive markets? An adaptive market approach, and I sometimes call it an asset garden approach. So we can just own, we can own VT, which is the Vanguard Global Stock Market ETF. We can own BND, which is the Vanguard bond. And we maybe we go through a calculator and we just, let's say we put 60% in stocks, 40% in bonds, we rebalance it once a year. And that's fine. It works. Some people prefer to maybe make adjustments over time. They want to add, because they like investing. They want to learn more about it. So they might add a particular element of the market that that seems like because people are very negative. So let's say value stocks. So a type of style where things are cheaper. So it's being willing to make adjustments over time based on market conditions, based on what's expensive, what's cheap. So another example would be, we had an opportunity in the past year, even now, to purchase inflation index bonds. 
So treasury inflation protection securities. And without getting into the details, their yields hit the highest they've been in 10 years. And so we have members of our community that went out and and bought individual tips so they could lock in basically that 2% yield plus inflation. So that that's an adaptive adjustment. It's like, all right, I'm mostly in BND, but I want to lock in this inflation protected yield on these inflation index bonds. So I made an adaption to that. And that's all an adaptive approach is, is willing to make adjustments as the markets change over time, but always grounded in these other questions, these principles, being able to explain what it is, understand what's the upside, what's what's the worst thing that could happen, the downside. So in question number six, that is what is the investment vehicle? So what are the attributes of an investment vehicle? An investment vehicle is something, it's a package that just like a car and a car drives us around. An investment vehicle is something that holds a particular investment. So we've mentioned in this episode, we've mentioned index mutual funds. That mutual fund is an investment vehicle. So it's a structure that holds lots of different securities. An exchange traded fund is like a mutual fund, but it trades during the day. So that's a different type of investment vehicle. And so when we talk about the attributes, we want to know what it is. We want to know what the fees are. So what's it cost? What does it cost? We want to know what are the liquidity provisions? How easy is it to get in and out? Is it a private partnership where, or even an individual property, which is going to be very hard to sell? Or is it something that we can like a money market fund where we can just get out really easy. And so those are, it's the structure, it's understanding the fees, liquidity provision. So that would be some some of the attributes of an investment vehicle. Can you describe for our audience the differences between open-ended funds, closed-ended funds that you talk about, and actually ETFs? The one that we're most familiar with would be an open-ended mutual fund. So again, this is an investment vehicle. As a professional manager, it maybe owns 100 stocks. They're making decisions over time. And, and that fund, it just trades once a day. So the, the fund managers look at the, the administrators, look at here's the value of the individual stocks. Here's the value of the overall portfolio. Here's how many shares are outstanding. And, and then they divide the value of the portfolio by the shares outstanding. And that gets to what's known as the net asset value. So what is one value? What is the value per share? And then they look at the buy and sell orders. And then, then they execute those buys and sells at the net asset value. So it's very simple. So if you trade a mutual fund, it doesn't happen right away. You don't actually, the trade doesn't happen until the end of the day. So that's the first thing. A closed end fund doesn't trade at the end of the day. The only way to buy, it's like a, an open-end mutual fund, but as a closed-end fund, it it trades on the stock market exchange. And, and as a result, people can get overexcited. And so the, the price of that closed-end fund can differ from the net asset value. So it can sell at a discount or a premium, but there isn't, it doesn't, it's not like an open image fund that just trades at the end of the day. You get in and out. With a closed-end fund, you have to go to the stock market, you go to your broker, and you have to buy it. And you're probably buying at a price differ than 
what it's actually worth or the net asset value. And then an ETF is sort of a combination between the two, where it trades on an exchange. There's a professional management team that's picking securities, but based on the structure, there are all these market makers, authorized participants doing everything they can to keep the price of the the ETF in line, the market price in line with the net asset value. And so one way to think about it is an open end mutual fund, it always trades at the price always equals the net asset value. The closed end fund, the the price always differs from the net asset value, which is nice if we can buy it at a discount. And then in ETF, the price typically is very close to the net asset value, but only because you have all these actors in the background buying and selling shares of the ETF, shares of the underlying holdings of the ETF or the stocks the ETF hold. So it, it's pretty close, but it's not exact. And, that, and that's really the difference between the three. I primarily invest in ETFs because they're very close. They are more tax efficient than open-end mutual funds. But I'll also do some, let's call it more speculations and closed-end funds, buying something at a, a super big discount, hoping that discount will narrow over time. David, is there any fundamental difference between what's being held in those funds, between closed and open? Well, each of them uh, can own different things. So there are closed-end funds that own just U.S. stocks, just like there are open-end mutual funds that just own U.S. stocks. They, the portfolios might look exactly the same, but you know, with an investment vehicle, like a, an open-end or closed-end fund or an ETF, there are, there's a huge variety of things they could own. One advantage of a closed-end fund, because with an open-end mutual fund, one of the risks is everybody wants out. And so the manager has to start selling assets to meet redemptions. But with a closed-end fund, because that doesn't trade at the end of the day. The only way to buy it is to actually go on the market. A closed-end fund, in some cases, can own less liquid investments because they're never at risk of having to sell all their investments because there isn't any way to get out of a closed-end fund unless you sell it on an exchange. And an ETF, again, it's it's in between. There are people that there's ways to, that ETF can shrink over time, get bigger over time, but we don't have to go down that road. But it, it is sort of a hybrid of the two. One of the problems with an ETF, as you mentioned in your book, is a flash crash. Can you take us through that? Yeah. So with a flash crash, that's where there's a disconnect between what the shares are worth, the net asset value, and the market price. And it it's where that background players, the authorized participants, and the market makers, and, and it could be where basically the, the, the price, the market price of the ETF drops suddenly. 20, 30%. So there's a big disconnect. And usually it gets resolved fairly quickly. But if you happen to go into the market and and sell your ETF and it happens to be a flash crash, and it's only happened really twice, maybe three times. So it's it's pretty rare. ETFs have been tested now over decades. And so we can protect ourselves from flash crashes when we're buying an exchange traded fund. Well, the simplest way is just buy an index mutual fund an open-end fund, and you always get the right price, the price at the end of the day. But if you buy an ETF, you should do what's called a limit order, where you say, this is the price I'm willing to pay. And it's somewhere between the bid and ask price, or just whatever. The ask price is what they're willing to sell it for. And then you put your limit order in, I'll 
They ask price is $20 a share. I'm willing to pay $20 a share. And then the order will go through. Whereas traditionally people just did in market order and I'll just take whatever the market's giving. And that's just, that's unwise. We want to know what we're paying before we buy something. And question number seven, which is what does it take to be successful? You talk about wayfinding and you have a quote, it is better to be vaguely right than precisely wrong. So what do you mean by wayfinding and and talk to us about that quote? So wayfinding is really, I think it's, we can think of Lewis and Clark. Pearl and I were just, we did some traveling here in, in Idaho. We were, we were sort of, we were at this ridge, this super huge climb that Lewis, the Lewis and Clark expedition went. And they'd never been there before. They sort of knew where they were, but they didn't know. In fact, they thought because the Native Americans right in that area fed them salmon, they thought that they were right by the ocean. When in reality, they were near the Salmon River and the salmon spawn and come thousand or so miles up, up that river system. So wayfinding is taking the tools we have, like we've talked about some of the 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 rules for figuring out what's an expected return for stocks. And it's making decisions based on some rules of thumb, based on things we can control, buying cash flow generating assets versus speculating in cryptocurrency. We can control those things, even though we don't know what's going to happen. With let's say Bitcoin, and I've seen people put an inordinate amount of wealth in Bitcoin when it was selling for 60,000 per coin. And with Bitcoin, you have to be precisely right or precisely wrong. It's either going to go up or going to go down. There is no cash flow. With, let's say, a piece of real estate, a rental real estate, maybe the, the price goes down a little bit, but you're still getting the rent over time. So it might not be a total loss. But being precisely right is there's only one answer. It's binary. Going to lose money or I'm going to make money and I can't even control why. And nobody knows what the right price is. That's being potentially being precisely wrong. Whereas most of our investing, we're not really sure. We have some guideposts. We don't know what the future is going to be. And that's why we use things like checklists and principles and rules of thumb to, to help guide our investments because we don't know what's going to happen. Just like Lewis and Clark, they had some compasses, they could use the stars, they got helpers along the way, in, like Native Americans, and they bought all kinds, of, like they overbrought stuff because they didn't know. But they sort of knew, they knew they were going out west to find the ocean, but they adapted over time. And that's sort of when we talked about adaptive asset allocation being willing to adjust. And we do the same thing for retirement. So I quit my job in my mid forties, called myself sort of retired. You could call it, I fired, but 50 years is an incredibly long time to retire. Like I don't want to be dependent on my investment portfolio for 50 years. So I did other projects, et cetera, as I was wayfinding this retirement over time. And that's what led to money for the rest of us. But I didn't know how that was going to turn out. You just It's a constant experimenting, trying things out, figuring out what works. And we do that when we retire because we don't know how it's going to work out, which is why it's helpful to have addition, additional sources of income, even if it's part-time. So we're not completely dependent on our stock portfolio. 
which I, I would be terrified if my investment was dependent entirely on stocks. But people do it all the time. Well, I'm just going to get the dividends. Like, great. What if it falls 65%? And that bear market happens the last 10 years this time. So that that's our ongoing challenge as Wayfinders. You also talk about in this chapter, dependable and less dependable return drivers. How do we identify these? Well, there are not that many. A dependable return driver for bonds is interest. And we've already talked about what's the current yield to maturity. Right now, it's it's 5% for bonds. That's dependable. We're going to get that interest rate. If we hold it seven years, we're going to earn 5%. Uh, a non-dependable would be gold. We don't know what gold's going to do. You know, over long term, it kept up in inflation, but it's a terrible inflation hedge on a on a year-to-year basis. And so that that's not dependable. That's why it's a speculation. We can't depend, we can't put all of our retirement funds in gold and hope we'll hope it's going to turn out because we have no idea. And so we don't. We we put five percent of our retirement perhaps in gold and put the rest in, in bonds and stocks because they have cash flow and cash flow is dependable. And it's a dependable return driver because it makes up a a good portion of the long-term performance and the cash flow compounds. That compounding of cash flow is dependable. Speculating on a specific event happening and having to be right about that is, is not dependable for investing. So question number eight is who's getting a cut? And we've talked about fees in some of our uh, previous episodes with other people, but let's talk about this one. So who is getting a cut and where do those fees come from? They come from us, typically. <laughs> Your typical <laughs> mutual fund or ETF, there's a, there's an expense ratio. So, and it, it's published and we know what they are. And so the fees that, that are out there are a, a high fee is generally coming out of our assets. So if we hire an investment advisor and they're charging a percent and a half, that's a percent and a half coming out of our return. And then if that advisor is, is putting us into, uh, let's say, a mutual fund that charge a commission. So every time they buy the fund, it costs us 5% of our, our assets going into that fund. And so it's just recognizing you know, nothing's free. Uh, financial advisors need to earn a living just like the, the rest of us. And so we just we need to be aware what are the fees and, and are they reasonable compared to what else is available. And, and that's because we're paying them. And we want to make sure that we're getting our money's worth for what we're paying. So how would you suggest evaluating a fee? Because I think that for a new investor, that that's a pretty daunting task. Well, I think for a new investor, you invest in index mutual funds and ETFs. So invest with Vanguard or iShares, and the fees are always low. And so you don't have to spend a lot of time worrying about it. If you want to hire an advisor to do a financial plan, it's often better to do an hourly rate and know what the fee is or a one-time financial plan fee, uh, uh, whatever, let's say it's $5,000. You know what it is. That's different than paying an ongoing asset management fee to have them pick ETFs for you. That that can get expensive over time. But whenever we hire somebody to do anything, we can find out the fees. But for an ETF or index mutual funds, something like Vanguard or iShares, because it's such a competitive marketplace, we know the fees are low, so we don't have to spend that much time worrying about them. 
In this chapter, you also talk about rebalancing a portfolio. How do you look at it that might be different from others? Well, typically when we talk about rebalancing, it means we have an actual target. So when you rebalance, you have, this is my target. It's 60% stocks, 40% bond. A year has gone past. The market's done well. Now my portfolio is 65% stocks, 35% bonds. So I decided I'm going to sell 5% of my portfolio in stocks and invest it in bonds. So that's what rebalancing is. But the given is you actually have a target. In my portfolio, I don't have a target. I just sort of have I what I call an asset garden. So I have a variety of different asset types different return drivers. I'll adjust it over time, kind of on an ongoing basis because I like investing and I'm spending time to all make whatever, a half dozen changes per year. And so it doesn't require me to rebalance to a target because I don't have a firm target. I just sort of have this this garden And, and with a variety of things going on, and then as things change, I'll make adjustments. And so those just are just two approaches. There's the strategic approach where you have strategic rebalancing. And then there's more of an asset garden approach. We have a variety. It's more adaptive, more flexible. It's probably more time consuming, but it's just a different way of, of investing. And that sort of leads us into question number nine, which is how does it impact your portfolio? So, right. So we as investors, we're building portfolios. So a portfolio is a basically a pool of different asset types. So a, a 401k balance is a portfolio because there's different funds in there and there could be some stock funds and some bond funds. And so when we make a new investment, a new house, an apartment, we want to understand like how does that impact the overall mix? So Let's say we decide to sell three quarters of our stock portfolio to invest in one real estate fund or a building, right? That's going to have a big impact. And so we want to understand, well, how liquid will I be at that point? Will I be able to actually get cash flow to meet my expenses in retirement? And so these these portfolio decisions are just more, how does the individual decision affect the overall pie? One of the ways that one of our community members recommends doing this is to use a website called PortfolioVisualizer.com so that you can put in all your assets and see what the impact really is as opposed to just guessing. Yeah, I mean, that's that's one way to do it. Portfolio Visualizer does a good job. And we have a, a spreadsheet in our membership community where people can put it in and they can see here's the expected return of their current mix. Here's the worst case scenario. Here's the ranges. And so anything we can use, tools to understand what's the overall expectation in terms of return and and some measure of risk for a portfolio is it's helpful to know because we don't, again, we don't want to invest blindly, not having any idea, especially somebody's thinking about retirement or retiring early. They want to know. And so my approach to retirement is sort of like what Wade Faw calls a, a safety first approach. So I want most of my expenses to be covered by guaranteed sources of income. So social security, some type of annuity product, if you happen to have a pension. And so then I'm not so dependent on the investment portfolio. I can actually take more risk there. So if there's different ways to do that, but that again, that's a portfolio decision. How much of the retirement will be an annuity? How much will be other assets? 
one of the things that our community is focused on is optimization. And how does optimization really affect our portfolio? And why in the investment garden, where your portfolio is more complicated, our audience is more focused on simplicity? Why don't we buy just VT, short-term treasuries and tips and cash and chill? Why don't we do just VTSAX, short-term treasuries and cash? Our audience is focused more on simplicity, but does optimization and these simpler focuses, is does that still get us where we want to go as opposed to the asset garden you talk about? Well, first off, I think there's a difference between simplicity and optimization. Optimization implies that you can get the right answer and there is no right answer in investing. So we don't optimize, we cope. And so we cope, we can cope by having very simple portfolio. So it can be two funds. But if you're going to invest in two funds, I think we should have a reasonable expectation for what the returns of those two funds should be. We should understand enough about those two funds to understand what is the yield of the bond fund or what is the yield on the treasury and how does that work? Or what's the reasonable return for the stock fund and and what drives that? And, And that's when I talk about asset camp, And it's a work in progress, but we're trying to help people at least have a base understanding of what drives the stock market because most people are ignorant of it. They just don't really understand and they don't understand it's driven by cash flow and how that cash flow grows and what people are, what investors are paying for that. So I think, I don't think it can be so simple. I think it'd be the implementation could be two funds. We can't just stop there. We have to understand what drives those returns of those funds. Like what, what's the math and emotion behind that? And I think we fall short as a community because we don't do that oftentimes because it seems too hard or too complicated, but there's some base things we can learn to understand investing. And that was sort of the purpose of the book, trying to just teach some basic principles. And, and on our mission at Money for the Rest of Us, I always ask myself, how can this be easier? How can we make this easier for investors so that they understand? and feel confident in their investing. So we get to question number 10, which is the big the big question, should we invest? So talk to us about that. All right. So if if one has a checklist, they go through the checklist, your son goes through the checklist and he has to decide, are we going to fly the plane or not today? And that's all this is. We have a process to decide We can explain the investment. We understand what the upside return could be. We understand the worst case scenarios. We understand the vehicle, the fees. We understand what does it take to be successful? Does it depend on me being super smart or are there underlying drivers and principles going to drive returns? What's the impact on my portfolio? And then once we know that, then we can decide whether to move forward or not and invest. So it's sort of the culmination of the entire checklist process to decide, yeah, I want to do it. And oftentimes we might say, well, I'm going to take a little bit of position in it to learn more about it and to see how it goes. And we saw this, I would see this a lot of times in the invest in the professional space where a hedge fund manager might take a small position to keep it on the radar, to understand what's going on, to understand how it trades and things like that. And that's also another approach, taking baby steps as we learn and then decide whether to invest or not. One of my friends in the space, the white coat investor, Jim Dolly, talks about there are no called strikes in investing. We can choose or not to choose 
to swing after we've uh, investigated an investment. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. No, that, and that, that Jeremy Grantham had a similar quote. And, and one of our advantages as individual investors versus professionals, because professionals have to swing. They're getting paid to make individual decisions. And they haven't spent time in this space. They, they have clients that are asking, well, what are you doing? Why are you? If they're 80% in cash, their clients get upset. And so they have to find something to invest in. As an individual investor, we can be patient. So we don't have to swing if we don't want. We can spend time learning about a particular investment. Now, eventually, we're going to have to invest in something unless we're independently wealthy and we just own cash. But other than that, we're going to actually have to make choices, make decisions. And so we need a process to do that. It can be simple, but it can't be naive. There's some basic understanding of, we can't just say, I have my index funds, I'm fine. Great. You have your index funds. What is the historical returns of those index funds? What drove those returns? What's a reasonable expectation going forward? What's the worst case scenario for those index funds? Am I prepared for that? Maybe I shouldn't have as much in those index funds. That the, It's those type of basic questions that isn't just so simple that we're naive and don't really understand. We're all smart enough to understand the basics of investing without having to hire somebody to, to do it for us. But we, we can't invest naively. So when we swing, one of the conundrums is, do we dollar cost average or lump sum, especially if we have a windfall? How do you see this conundrum? I, I do dollar cost averaging. Because that's that's an example of not knowing what's going to happen. It's an example of wayfinding. It's an example of controlling our emotions. The the academics would say, put it all in as a lump sum, because over time, the the market goes up, the stock market, and that is that's what the math says. The emotion says that if we put it all in at once and it falls thirty percent, we feel terrible. And one of the things that we talk a lot about on our on our site in the community is to minimize our maximum regret. And what decision can we make so that we don't feel awful? So let's say we put it all in as a lump sum. The market sells off 30%. Then we panic. Then we pull it all out. I'm going to wait for a better time. And then the market takes off and, and goes up 50%. And then we missed out. And then we feel terrible. Wouldn't it be so much easier to say, all right, I have this windfall. I want to get invested. I'm going to take two years to do it. And I'm going to put a little bit in each month for the next two years. And and sometimes the market's up, sometimes it's down. But I, I've controlled my emotion because I have a plan. And I'm not going to experience. Now, maybe if the market went up 100% the first month, yeah, you'll feel bad. But you'll feel way better or less bad than you would if you put it all in and the market fell 50%. Because losses feel way worse than gains that we missed out on. David, do you have a rule of thumb for your dollar cost averaging? Does it depend on how, what the amount is? or? Yeah, it depends on... like So I, once I left my advisory firm, they paid me over seven years. And so I got a big lump sum every... December. And I'd probably take about a year to invest that. 
so in a year because at the time it was you know it was a, a a big piece and and part of it is just getting used once you have a lump sum it takes a while to get used to making bigger trades like oh, I've never put a hundred thousand dollars in the market at one time that feels scary to me and so it's it you kind of have to scale it based on how much is it relative to your net worth how big a trade is it going to be so any of these things we can do to control our, our motion and get control over the fear and temper the greed we might have. One of the ways that you manage whether or not you should invest in the leading edge of the current market is you have a red, green, and yellow approach. And what do you use to assess the market uh, that maybe our investors could use to? We we look at valuations of asset classes. So we we want to understand is the market cheap or not relative to its average. So we can I mean there are you can search for the well like a free well it's a complicated source but a free source is research affiliates. They have an asset allocation tool that they come up with expected returns for different stocks and you can see or for different asset types and see is it more expensive. But it, it kind of gives us a, a base case. In our case, we're looking at, we rate it, we try to simplify it, we rate them red. So we look at lots of different asset types. We look at the economic trends in terms of, without getting into a bunch of details, we look at just basically what is the risk of the market selling off? What is the level of fear and greed? Honestly, I don't think most people have to spend time doing that. Like we do it because we geared toward investors that they're, want to understand how markets work and they they're trying to control our emotions so we're not doing it to be predictive of the market we're trying to understand the market's temperature and for some people knowing where we are from an economic standpoint from an asset class standpoint from a level of fear and greed standpoint helps them make better decisions to control their emotions and so that that's our approach it sounds like for your community it's much simpler than that which is perfectly fine and so you don't have to spend time figuring out whether, you know, what's red, green, or yellow. Just, but understand what drives your index funds and what's a reasonable return over the long-term period. And then am I saving enough and, and things like that. David, we've talked about 10 questions that we can use to evaluate whether or not to purchase an investment. So what questions do we need to ask when it comes time to possibly sell an investment? There's a number of reasons to sell. We sell if our thesis or expectation didn't work out and we're wrong. Now, if you're buying an index mutual fund, kind of hard to be wrong there. So that's why we often don't sell those because they're compounding cash flow over time. But we have bought a, a house before. And when we got there, they didn't adequately disclose the mold issue. I don't think they were aware of it or whatever. They showed some integrity and they bought it back, but we sold it back to them because we were wrong and they were wrong. So that would be another reason to sell. Sometimes we sell an investment because we need the money. If you're retired at some point, you need maybe to sell some of your stock index funds so you can live on. So that would be another reason to sell. So liquidity, we need the money. We're wrong and we'll sell if there's a better opportunity. Maybe we sell some stocks because we want to put a down payment on our retirement condo or something like that. And so there's a need, there's a use for the money that 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 
provide that's an investment that's a better opportunity, maybe has a higher expected return or fits our lifestyle better. Or we want to reduce risk because we're heading into retirement and we're 90% stocks and that feels terrifying. Or we want to sell the stocks because we want to buy an annuity so we can guarantee, get that guaranteed income source. So those are reasons to sell. This has been an awesome episode. You've given us so many valuable nuggets for our audience, but we have to remember that our audience are late starters. Do you have any specific tips that would generate from your book for late starters in particular? The book is on investing. So I think we've covered the investing principles that will help late starters. My approach is to recognize it's not all or nothing. So your late starter, we talk a lot about on the show, invest like you're already retired. Try to structure a life that you can maintain for decades. Like, how would you live in retirement? That retirement is freedom. So how can I have that freedom now? Maybe I'm still working part-time or generating cash flow in some ways. So it isn't, sometimes it seems like with the fire movement, you either fired or you didn't. Well, no, it's not actually that simple. It's, I've restructured my life to focus more on freedom. But like in my case, I'm not going to retire. Or people could say, well, you're already retired because you quit job. Yeah, well, yeah, I quit my professional job, but then I launched something else. And so you sort of adapt over time, but maybe someday I'll retire. But there's a huge amount of freedom that comes by being able to generate cash flow in some way, apart from your investments. Once it's completely investments, it can often lead to a scarcity mindset because you're very focused. Did my dividends come in, et cetera? Now, for some people, that could be great because whatever lifestyle they they created, they don't want anything to do with any type of income generation. But for most people, if I find that they do because they want to be involved some way. And so that often involves receiving some type of income doing it, even if it's part-time. And so I don't, as long as I'm, you know, I quit my job 11 years ago. And so now, you know, I'm in my late fifties and I work with my two sons on our family business and my daughter. And why would I quit that? Because I'm having fun. And so the idea is to try to structure something that you can do for decades ahead. And it can take some experimentation to figure out what that was. So I don't really like the sort of that demarcation. I I mean, I'm financially dependent or retired because it's, it's way more fluid than that. Great. So, David, where can people reach you? We have two main websites. We have moneyfortherestofus.com, which is our podcast and uh, membership community. We also have assetcamp.com, which is our service, to more simplified service to help people understand stock index funds and the drivers of that and reasonable returns. So tell us a little bit about that. Is that like a group Zoom call or how, how does that look? No, at this point, it you sign up, it'll be 20 bucks a month and there's three components. There's guides, part of education guides to understand how the stock market works. So there's a component that you can look at the historical returns and what drove them into those three factors we've discussed. There's an element to figure out what the expected return is for those different aspects of the stock market. And then there's a bunch of charts and graphs for people that want to, like, what's the dividend yield over of global stocks over time? You know, are dividends higher or lower than average? So those type of things. 
Right. So it's online online resources. Yeah, it's an online resource. Now, maybe it involves a Zoom call. We started it because we couldn't find the data. We we wanted to be able to show a chart that shows the valuation of global stocks. There's lots of stuff on the U.S. stock market. If you once you move outside of the U.S., so the global stock market, there just wasn't the data available. And we got tired of not being able to find the data we wanted. So we we tried for years. So we ended up building our own platform. And then we use those charts in our you know, Money for the Rest of Us Plus, our membership community. So we use that in our reports. But for people that just want a bunch of data or want simplification, we, we provide that as an option. And, and we're iterating it to figure out what to do with it over time. Well, David... This has been awesome today. We want to thank you from the bottom of our hearts for coming on and helping our late starter investors catch up to FI. We wish you well, and I want to say have a great day. Great. Thank you. Everything we discussed in this episode has been for general education. We have not considered your specific risk situation. We've not provided investment advice. So simply general education on money, investing in the economy. Have a great week.